Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is so great to have you back here with me for another episode of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is the show where each and every Friday we strive to expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. And today's episode of Felony Friday is a special episode. It's a milestone episode. This is the 50th episode of Felony Friday. And it is super hard for me to believe that I've been able to put together 50 shows over the past year. We started this show back in January, and it's been an incredible ride. It's gone quickly. But it's been a lot of fun. And I can't go on any farther without thanking those who have allowed me to do this. And that starts with thanking my wife, who has supported me. Supported me with making this show. This does take up a lot of time. I don't really consider the producing, the recording, the interviews on this show to be work, per se, because it is very enjoyable for me. But there is a big time commitment. And I got to thank my lovely wife, for bearing with me and supporting me while I pursue my passions. And of course, I wouldn't have produced 10 shows, let alone the 50 shows that I've produced, without having such a wonderful and engaging audience as we do here at Lions of Liberty. I want to thank each and every one of you out there listening, those of you who this is the first show you've listened to, or those who have listened to all 50. I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to Felony Friday, and for listening to all the shows on the Lions of Liberty podcast. One last thank you, then I'll move on. Of course, I can't go on without thanking my fellow Lions of Liberty members here. Of course, I'm talking about Mark Clare and Brian McWilliams, my fellow co-founders here at Lions of Liberty. It hasn't always been smooth sailing. We have had our bumps along the way here at Lions of Liberty, but I've never been more convinced that we are building something special here, and it is an honor to work with you two guys, and I really do appreciate you allowing me and supporting me as I went off on my own here with this Friday show, Felony Friday. And of course, you supported me and come on the show many times. I do appreciate that. But I am convinced we are definitely on the right path for the Lions Liberty podcast. Okay, enough with the mushy stuff. I do want to uh, get to the interview here momentarily. I'm going to be interviewing a woman by the name of Karamit Ryder. Karamit is an author of an exceptional book, exposes the horror suffered by inmates resulting from the incredibly barbaric, solitary confinement epidemic in this country. I'll introduce Karamit momentarily. Before I do that, I do want to remind you, this is the 50th episode of Felony Friday, so that means you can find the show notes with links and notes with everything that I'll be talking about today with Karamit at lionsofliberty.com slash FF50. One last note before getting to the interview, please check out igniteliberty.us and think about ordering a Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt. It's a great way to start a conversation. All Make Liberty Great Again hats are $19.95, and you can get free shipping on anything hats or shirts that you order now through the end of this month, That this month being December 2016, by entering discount code HOLIDAY at checkout. And that's discount code HOLIDAY for free shipping. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Kermit Ryder. Kermit is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at the School of Law at the University of California, Irvine. Kermit has worked as an associate at Human Rights Watch and has testified about the impacts of solitary confinement before state and federal legislators. She studies prisons, 
prisoners' rights, and the impact of prison and punishment policy on individuals, communities, and legal systems. She's the author of a book called 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. And this book exposes the inhumane practice of solitary confinement in the U.S. prison system. Karamit, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Karamit. And this is a, a topic that, to be completely honest with you, I'm interested in learning more about it, but it's the more I learn, the more horrible it is and the uh, kind of the more uh, <laughs> the more terrifying it is. I've had that experience studying it also. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, we're going to probably focus most of this talking about your book and talking about solitary confinement. But before we go down that path, I do want to give the Felony Friday audience an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So maybe if you could start out talking, talking about how you first developed an interest in the criminal justice system overall. Sure. I actually started teaching in prison when I was in college just because I was looking for an interesting volunteer opportunity and I was interested in education generally. And through those experiences, I taught in a juvenile hall and I taught in a uh, county jail facility in Boston. I kept meeting really interesting people (laughs) who had really horrifying stories to tell. And that got me interested in the criminal justice system and how people ended up there and how it became so dysfunctional. And then I did work in a variety. You mentioned I worked for Human Rights Watch. I did work litigating prison conditions issues. And As I did that work, I kept being surprised by how little people knew about how we got the policies we got and about who was being impacted by them. So basically, often I found myself in situations where I was trying to advocate for different policies or think about litigation strategy and felt like I just didn't have the basic information I needed to make those decisions. And and that propelled me more into an academic position and more and more towards research on these issues. And of course, given that interest, solitary confinement was an obvious place to want to study because it is, you know, one thing people say about solitary confinement is it's a prison within a prison. So because it is kind of doubly hidden, it was a particularly interesting place to want to gather information and study. So your interest in criminal justice reform pushed you into academia? Basically, yes. Pushed you towards academia to find solutions? Exactly, exactly. And just to be part of creating a better base of knowledge about how our systems work and who's impacted by them. Okay. I read uh, most of your book. You taught at San Quentin for a while? I did, yes. So I first started teaching in prison and college in Boston, but the entire time I was in graduate school, I actually taught at San Quentin. Okay. And what type of effect did, did that have on you? I mean, San Quentin is, I guess, one of the more, you know, they do house some of the more dangerous criminals there, correct? As more dangerous prisoners. So what type of impact did that experience have on you working on a day-to-day basis with people who, you know, outsiders would perceive these individuals, these prisoners to be terrifying people. But what was your experience working with them on a daily basis? Well, San Quentin is an interesting place. You're right that they do have death row in California. And so that is a, a very high security population. But they also have a large population of what California calls lifers, prisoners who are serving life sentences. But often those prisoners at San Quentin today are older. So they're people who are pretty used to the system and tend to be lower criminal activity and lower security than, say, a really young prisoner who just entered the system or someone who's maybe serving a shorter term. Lifers tend to feel like they have a lot to lose. In California, they have a chance of parole often, and so they're invested in establishing their rehabilitation and following the rules. So that's the population at San Quentin, which is an important way to frame it, I think. But 
it is a really interesting population to work with. And one of the things about teaching in prison that, that got me interested in criminal justice issues more broadly is that prisoners are tend to be so grateful for the opportunity to have an education. They're often people who didn't ever have opportunities for education before they entered prison or didn't take advantage of them. And by the time they enroll in education programs in prison, they're really motivated to succeed. And that makes them just incredibly attentive, engaged students and exciting people to work with. And so I have a very different perspective on prisoners. You know, as an educator, I see prisoners as some of the best students I've ever had. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I've had Michael Santos on the podcast before, and he's big into prison reform and helping people find success after prison, having served a over 20 year sentence himself. And one thing he talks about, and you kind of talked about it there with the San Quentin prisoners, is they've been in prison for a long time and they can see a light at the end of the tunnel almost where they can get out. And I think, you know, as we talk today, we talk about solitary confinement. Uh, that's one of the things that is obviously lacking in a solitary situation. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no incentive. There is no way that some of these prisoners can build up uh, goodwill to get out and get on parole and, and get on the outside and start to build a life. So I think that's a really interesting concept. Um, I do want to pivot and start to talk about your book, 23-7 Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. Uh, just curious, first question that comes to mind is where did this idea come from and why the focus on solitary confinement? Where did the idea of solitary confinement come from? No, no, excuse me. The idea of, I guess, the idea for the book, the idea of ah. focusing on Pelican Bay ah. and the idea of focusing for your book, the idea of focusing on solitary confinement. Ah, yes. So Pelican Bay was one of the first long-term solitary confinement modern facilities built in the United States. It opened in 1989. Arizona actually opened the first facility in 1986, and California copied that model. In California, also, Pelican Bay is one of the biggest of these facilities. It has 1,056 beds designed for long-term isolation. So that made California a particularly interesting place to study. Pelican Bay, a particularly interesting place within California. And then as I kind of suggested before, solitary confinement is an interesting thing to study because it is one of the most hidden aspects of the prison system. And as someone interested in getting a better sense of where our policies come from and who's impacted by them, solitary confinement was an obvious choice for me as, as a place where more and better information could really help us think differently about policy. So you talk about Pelican Bay being really the second of these facilities dedicated to solitary confinement, first one being in Arizona, I think you said. Mm -hmm. Where did this, um, I guess, this new form of, I mean, there was solitary confinement, obviously, before that, which you talked about in your book. Mm -hmm. But where did this come from? Where did this idea come from of a facility dedicated to solitary confinement? That is at the crux of the book is why in the 1980s did so many prison systems decide that they needed so many beds for long-term solitary confinement? And the answer to that question is multifaceted. The kind of simple answer is that in the 1980s, most states were building more prisons because this was at a time when incarceration rates were rising across the United States, existing prison facilities were getting overcrowded, and states were figuring out how to create more bed space. And in that process, many states built these supermax facilities for long-term solitary confinement. So in California, the state built 23 new prisons in the 1980s and 1990s. Pelican Bay was just one of those. But what I discovered in the process 
process of writing the book is that the roots of these supermaxes go back way further and deeper than mass incarceration and the 1980s. That actually prison officials who worked on building these facilities talk about them being necessary as a response to a civil rights movement that was happening outside of prison and revolutionary violence that was happening inside of prison. And so one of the stories I tell in the book is about George Jackson, who was accused of escaping from prison in California in 1971. He was shot and killed on the prison yard. And on that day, three prisoners and two correctional officers also died. It was one of the most violent days in California prison history. And two weeks later, the revolt at Attica happened, in which ultimately more than 30 people died. And there were moments of violence like that in prisons across the United States in the 1970s into the early 1980s. And many supermaxes were built in response to those particular outbreaks of violence as prison officials were advocating for them as a means to control that kind of organized violence. Talking about, uh, I guess, some of these specific stories with uh, George Jackson and this violence in the 1970s, was some of this really brought on by the prison system itself. I know not to get, I guess you can get into the story, individual story of George Jackson if you want to. But I mean, what it seemed like to me reading it is it was a, uh, a setup really um, in, in order to kill him, you know, mm-hmm. taking him out in the yard with, you know, two warring factions of the prison and really having him gunned down by a sniper. Mm-hmm. Was this something that the prison really, did that seem like it was intentional to you? You know, one of the fascinating aspects of the story of George Jackson is that we still don't know exactly what happened to him. Prison officials say he was trying to escape and they gunned him down to prevent that and that he had that he was responsible for the other deaths that happened that day. But uh, George Jackson's advocates say that he was set up by the system because he had challenged it. He'd been so critical of prison conditions and racist policies. George Jackson was a best-selling author at the time. He'd written a book of letters that had made the national and international bestseller lists. So he had become a real voice and advocate for change. And I think this is a key piece of trying to understand what was happening. I gave you the prison officials' perspective of we have this revolutionary violence in prison and we need a tool to control it. But the prisoners' perspective was that they were actually advocating often peacefully and nonviolently for improvements to incredibly harsh conditions of confinement. Uh, One of the things George Jackson complained about was the racist way sentencing was being implemented. And he was also complaining about prison conditions, cells that lacked running water and light and were overcrowded, and prisoners experiencing horrible abuses in prison. Same at Attica, the prisoners were protesting really barbaric conditions of confinement. So there are two sides to this story, and that's really important to understand. Right, right. Makes sense. So let's take, I guess, a a step forward or step to talk about a different, uh, actually to get to kind of wrap our minds around what solitary confinement is and what it actually, what a prisoner experiences when they're in solitary confinement. So can you just help us to paint the picture of the existence, the daily existence of a prisoner as they sit in solitary confinement? How big is the cell? What are they provided? Typically, do they get to go outside? What, What is their daily life like while in solitary confinement? Absolutely. So the the title of the book is a good starting place. It's 23-7 to describe the fact that prisoners spend an average of at least 23 hours a day in their cell, seven days a week. And we're talking about prisoners experiencing these conditions, not just for weeks, but for months and years at a time. In California, 
there were up until just a few months ago, there were more than 500 prisoners who had spent more than 10 years in these conditions of confinement. So one of the key aspects of understanding this is that we're talking about really long periods of time in a cell that is roughly eight by 10 feet. So imagine a wheelchair accessible bathroom stall or a parking space. And that's where these prisoners are spending 23 hours or more a day. In practice, prisoners usually only leave the cell two or at most three times a week in order to go out to an exercise yard, which is about twice the size of the cell in most states and is, you know, prisoners often call it a dog run. It's basically an empty concrete box, much like the cell. And they might spend an hour in that yard. During that time out of their cell, they might also be able to take a shower. But everything else is self-contained in the cell. It has a little steel toilet sink combination, a poured concrete ledge with a really thin foam pad for a mattress, and a kind of poured concrete ledge that serves as a, a, a stool and desk. And prisoners spend, you know, 23 hours or more or day in those conditions, their food comes in on a tray through a slot in their cell door. So there's no need for any human contact at any point over the course of a day. Even when the prisoner goes out to an exercise yard, usually it's an officer in a central control booth pressing a button to open one prisoner's door at a time. So prisoners talk about going years at a time without seeing the moon or a living creature, making eye contact with anyone or feeling a human touch, except maybe to have handcuffs put on them. If their families are able to visit them, it would happen behind bulletproof glass and they wouldn't have any physical contact. And most of these facilities are located in incredibly rural, hard to reach locations. So California's Pelican Bay is on the state's northernmost border with Oregon. It's six, seven hours from San Francisco, 10, 12 hours from Los Angeles, where most of the prisoners are from. So it's incredibly hard for families to get to if the prisoner even does have family. And, you know, I think one of the best ways to think about the starkness of the conditions is to look at what prisoners asked for in California over the last few years when they coordinated a series of hunger strikes to protest the conditions of confinement. And they asked for such incredibly simple things like could we have a handball when we go out onto that cement exercise yard so we have something to do to engage our hands and minds? And could we have a wool cap because it's cold and dark up on the northern border with Oregon? So those kinds of requests give you a sense of just how little the prisoners in these conditions have. That's a really good point. Um, just such simple things that, you know, basic things that <laughs> Really, we would take for granted today, obviously, you know, with cell phones and all kinds of different entertainment that exactly. we need. Just asking for just a ball to keep yourself entertained really is hard to even fathom how somebody could value that something like that exactly. in their life. And you did talk a little bit about the hunger strikes and, and things like that that have happened recently, bringing attention to solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that, about Todd Asker's story and uh, I know you, you talk about him a lot in the book mm -hmm. and his, uh, his story about how he came into the prison system and how he came to be in solitary confinement. Can you share kind of his role in that hunger strike? Mm -hmm. So Todd Eschger's story actually has some interesting parallels to George Jackson in that he came to prison pretty young. He wasn't sent to prison for a murder or life sentence. He was expecting to spend a few years in prison, and he was sent to isolation for a minor violation when he got to prison in California in the 80s. And while he was in isolation, he ended up being accused of murdering another prisoner. So Todd Eschger was allowed out onto the block to do some cleaning, you know, a privilege 
that some people might have in isolation sometimes. And he was accused of murdering another prisoner. The story the prison system told was that it was an Aryan Brotherhood hit, although that was never proven in court. But as a result, Ashker was validated as an Aryan Brotherhood gang member, which is how many people end up in isolation in states, especially in California, but across the U.S. It's important to understand that prisoners end up in solitary confinement in supermaxes like Pelican Bay based on their in-prison behavior. So prison administrators assign them there. They're not sent there by a judge or a jury. And prisoners end up there for such long periods of time, like those 500 guys who've been there more than 10 years, based on being validated as gang members or labeled as dangerous by the prison system. So it's not even a specific action that they took, but their status that gets them sent to isolation for an indefinite time. That's what happened to Todd Asker. He had a a trial for the murder he committed, and and he was found guilty, not of pre-planning the murder, but he was found guilty of a basically manslaughter. But the prison system said he was an Aryan Brotherhood member and sent him to isolation as a result of his status as a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. He was one of the first guys who went to Pelican Bay when it opened in 1989, and he spent decades there. And in 2011, he was one of a group of prisoners who coordinated a hunger strike to protest the conditions of confinement that I described at Pelican Bay. The group of prisoners who started the hunger strike were housed together on what was colloquially known as the short corridor. So it was a group of eight cells. And these isolation cells are grouped into pods of eight, four cells on the bottom, four on the top. The prisoners look out at a blank white wall, fluorescent lights in their cell on 24 hours a day, no natural light. And basically the only people they can communicate with are those seven other guys on that pod. They can shout at them. Uh, Sometimes they're able to slide notes under their cell doors. And Ashgar was on a pod with seven other guys who were all allegedly members of rival gangs. So it was yet another layer of isolation that the prison system was imposing to have these guys who were allegedly mortal enemies on the same pod thinking that they wouldn't talk to each other at all and they'd be even further isolated. But after years, these guys did talk to each other and they're the ones who came up with this plan to coordinate a statewide prison hunger strike to protest the conditions and the fact that they had no hope of getting out of isolation because they'd all been labeled gang members, you know, regardless of any activity, just based on their status. And in California, being labeled a gang member could be based on something as simple as what you were reading, like George Jackson's letters, the kinds of tattoos you had, who you're hanging out with on a prison yard. Basic First Amendment rights essentially could make you liable to be labeled a gang member. So those prisoners got together, they wrote a letter, they sent it out to some prisoners' rights organizations in California, and those organizations sent it back into prisoners throughout the state. And in 2011, a few thousand prisoners participated in a hunger strike. And then in 2013, more than 30,000 prisoners refused food for almost two months in California. Uh, And that really brought national and international attention to the conditions of confinement in places like Pelican Bay. That's just amazing. 30,000 prisoners. How did they spread word throughout the prison system? Was it just word of mouth? Was it writing letters? It's kind of amazing how word can spread in a confined system. (laughs) So those guys in Pelican Bay sent sent out the letter in 2011 about their plans for the strike to advocacy organizations. And those organizations helped publicize it. So they sent letters into prisoners. There was information about it in 
legal newsletters that go into prison. And once one or two people at a prison hear about something like that, it's pretty easy for the information to spread just because people are living in such close confined quarters. So getting any information in can be hard, but once the information is in, it can spread pretty quickly. But it is phenomenal to think about that kind of coordination. I mean, it's essentially a quarter of the prisoners in, in California participated in the strike. And that was the prison system acknowledging that many people participating. Truly incredible. You've mentioned a couple times now in California, uh, 500 prisoners serving 10 years or more mm-hmm. in solitary confinement. You talk about it in the book a little bit, the lack of transparency within the system. Is there any mechanism, is there any database that's accessible to the public or really accessible <laughs> to anybody where federal and state prison facilities are tracking how many people they have in solitary confinement, how many hours prisoners are spending in solitary confinement? Is that in existence? Basically, no. This is a huge problem in terms of just understanding how widespread this practice is, what characterizes it in different states. One of the challenges that is the U.S. essentially has 51 different criminal justice systems. Each state has their own. And then the federal governments, and that doesn't even count county jail systems, which people are just beginning to think about. And every system labels these kinds of practices differently. And systems are invested in dissociating themselves for something that's been as heavily criticized as solitary confinement. So you'll often notice prison officials will say, oh, we don't use solitary confinement, even though prisoners are in their cells 23 hours a day in conditions very much like what I described. California prison officials often say, we don't use solitary confinement. That makes it very hard to track these practices. Last week, actually, there was a groundbreaking report released, and it was a collaboration with the Association of State Correctional Administrators, which is basically a like administrative leadership organization for prison officials, and a research center at Yale Law School, where they have been trying to systematically survey states about their solitary confinement practices. And the common term being used now is restrictive housing to encompass whether someone is in isolation 22 hours a day or 23 hours a day or 24 hours a day, and to try to really count the hours, the exact conditions that characterize this, and to begin to look at how long people are spending in these conditions. And in most states, it looks like it's an average of a year or two. And that doesn't even count these small groups of people that end up in isolation for years or decades. The group in California was especially big, obviously. It's just amazing. It's not surprising when you look at how governments operate that this stuff is not tracked, but obviously there's no way to nobody to see how much. Well, that's something I think citizens should demand. I mean, these practices are astronomically expensive. It's generally two to three times more expensive to keep someone in isolation than in the general prison population. In California, it costs $90,000 per prisoner per year to keep someone at Pelican Bay. So why is that? What types of things would contribute to more cost in solitary versus in the population? Well, one is that the infrastructure is expensive just to build and run these facilities where everybody has their own cell. Most California prisons are overcrowded and people might be housed two or three to a cell. And then there's the fact that in many prisons, prisoners are part of helping to run the institution. They might work in the kitchen. They might help deliver mail. They're kind of participating in the day-to-day activities. And in a supermax where someone is locked in their cell all day, every day, the staff have to do everything for that prisoner. They have to deliver them three meals a day. If they need medicine, they have to get it to their cell front. They have to get the mail. If they are legally mandated to have access to the law library, someone has to escort them there. Often, When prisoners leave their cell, the rules are they have to be escorted in handcuffs, leg cuffs, and a chain around their stomach with three to four officers at a time. That's incredibly expensive. Makes sense. 
one story I did want to ask you about, um, while we still have the time here, really a, just a, a terrifying and a very sad story we talk about it in the book, a man by the name of Von Dorch, uh, I believe yes. is, is his name, a guy with mental problems who was in solitary confinement and uh, the prison guards ended up putting him in scalding hot water to clean him mm-hmm. off. Can, can you talk a little bit about that situation? Absolutely horrifying. It is an utterly horrifying story, but it is unfortunately fundamentally representative of the challenges of these kinds of institutions. Von Dorch was severely mentally ill before he was ever put into isolation, and he deteriorated in isolation. That's representative. Many prisoners who are mentally ill end up in isolation because they have trouble following prison rules. They're really hard to manage in the general population. And then once they get to isolation, they continue to have trouble following rules and they end up stuck there. And many states have tried to reform this, but it's just really hard to evaluate. There was just a report this week about how bad the federal prison system is at actually acknowledging who's mentally ill and shouldn't be put in isolation. So Von Dorch ends up in isolation. And while he's there, he smears himself in his own excrement, which is another disturbingly common thing that happens in isolation in the U.S. And people argue about whether it's a form of resistance or whether it's a symptom of the mental health problems that we know people have when they're in isolation. Uh, One prisoner explained it to me as prisoners just not wanting to be touched, and it's a way to keep people from touching them. But nonetheless, this is what he did. And that puts prison officials in an incredibly tough situation. They've got this guy on this pod with seven other prisoners who smell horrible, who they can't control. They've already got him in the most restrictive conditions of confinement they can imagine. And so in this case, the guards dragged him out of his cell and dipped him in scalding water until his skin peeled off. And there was subsequently a lawsuit and all kinds of reforms inspired by this. But there was just a story two years ago in Florida of the exact same thing happening to a mentally ill prisoner in isolation. And and that prisoner actually died. Von Dorch survived. So it's a disturbing collateral consequence of these kinds of conditions and representative of the cycles of mental illness that are created here. Yeah, absolutely horrible. And definitely not the uh, the first time I've heard of someone with mental problems being thrown in isolation because it's it makes it easier on the prison guards, on the prison system, because mm-hmm. they don't have to deal with those problems. And it's obviously worse for the person who has the mental problems who, who's being put in that position. And like you said, they, they do deteriorate. <laughs> I did want to ask you about one really just shocking thing that I found. You were writing about in your book about Pelican Bay. When it first opened up, the guards would have gladiator-style fights between prisoners. Mm-hmm. They would set it up so they would open two doors at one time mm-hmm. and have fights. Was this something that was just guards just going rogue and be another owner? Or is this something that you found from your research that could have been more coming from prison administrators? Mm-hmm. I think there is an institutional explanation. I don't think there was, you know, a secretary of corrections who was suggesting this plot, but I do think that abuses of prisoners and setting prisoners up to harm each other are surprisingly common events in isolation, especially when these isolation facilities first open. And the best explanation I've heard and thought about for this is that you open an institution where you say you've put the worst of the worst prisoners, you put guards in charge of that institution, and they have something to prove, basically, that they can control these prisoners or that they're they're even worse than the worst of the worst. And so all kinds of abuses happen. And that includes both 
stories like Von Dorch's and stories like the gladiator fights in California where these prisoners get set up to fight each other sometimes to the death. When Pelican Bay first opened, actually, some prisoners were housed two to a cell. This is another problem that has been cropping up in supermaxes across the U.S. People are beginning to understand how often dangerous prisoners are housed two to a cell in a cell 23 or more hours a day with no relief. And that that as you can imagine, tends to create real violence between two people, you know, who are often already predisposed to violence. I can't imagine not being violent in that situation myself. Mm-hmm. I think of the gladiator fights as part of that institutional cycle of violence where we have these institutions that are ostensibly meant to control violence and to isolate prisoners, but they end up creating violence in all these kinds of disturbing ways. Yeah, some very dark stuff. I kind of want to try to end end on maybe an optimistic (laughs) note or or a positive note if possible. So what types of things are being done on the state or federal level? Are there reasons for optimism? Are there reforms, you think, on the horizon? There are definitely reasons for optimism. When I started studying this more than 10 years ago, no one really knew what solitary confinement was. I only knew about places like Pelican Bay because I'd been doing prison research and advocacy work for years. But when the hunger strikes happened, people began to pay a little more attention. I mean, I remember the first time a national news reporter called me and said, wait, what is Pelican Bay? What is a supermax? And that wasn't until 2011. But the hunger strikes were part of a much bigger national conversation about whether these conditions of confinement are constitutional or ethical. And there have been reforms in many states. In California, as of last month, the state had gotten all but five of those 517 guys who'd spent more than 10 years in isolation. All but five are now back in the general prison population in the state. And that's happening across the U.S. where states are either under pressure from litigation or legislation or just of their own initiative, given the national conversation about this, are working to really reduce their reliance on solitary confinement. Now, part of the story of the book is that that process has only happened because of public attention and oversight, and that when we forget about these places and stop paying attention again, the use of solitary confinement tends to increase and be hidden and take a long time to make sense of. So I think in addition to the sense of this being unethical and the attention that's happening now, we need better infrastructure to really understand who's there and to keep track of the use of isolation perpetually in facilities. Absolutely. If you don't understand the problem and understand how widespread it is, how can you even uh, really solve it and eradicate it? Hopefully eventually. But obviously one of the reasons I wanted to have you on Karamit is I wanted my audience, I wanted them to hear about the horrors of solitary confinement. I wanted to get some exposure and I wanted them to learn about your book. Is there any other uh, way, any other projects that you're working on, any ways that the uh, Lions of Liberty audience can get involved with helping to end solitary confinement? Well, I think one really important piece of being involved is just being educated and helping to educate other people, being demanding as taxpayers to know more about what's happening inside our prisons and especially in solitary confinement. And I think the first step to that is just understanding these facilities better, paying attention, reading the news, talking to people about it. And then the next step, if you're really interested in being involved, I think is, you know, figuring out what's going on around you in your local communities, whether it's in the jails or in your state prisons, and seeing if there is 
with legislation or oversight mechanisms pending to try to reform these practices. And I think public involvement has been hugely important in the states where that's happening. And one of the best resources for kind of tracking what's happening even locally is a blog called Solitary Watch that tends to publish daily news stories about what's happening at the local level around solitary confinement. So that can be a good resource. And they also have resources to correspond with prisoners in isolation, which is a more kind of humane one-on-one way to engage with these conditions and learn more about them. Okay. I will definitely link to Solitary Watch on the show notes page. And uh, where can they find your book? My book is available anywhere books are sold. As a book author, I've suddenly become very supportive of independent bookstores. (laughs) So, you know, go ask your local bookstore. But absent that, you can order it on Amazon or from other, you know, standard booksellers. It's published by Yale University Press. You can order it directly from their press website. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Karamit. Thank you for all you're doing to shine a light on this area of the criminal justice system that I feel, and I I think you obviously feel too, has been ignored for far too long by far too many. And uh, ask you to please keep up the fight for liberty. And thanks so much for covering these issues. It's an important part of the conversation. All right. Thank you. Hopefully everyone enjoyed today's show and found it informative. I know that I did. And I talked about at the beginning of this show during the intro that this was the 50th episode of Felony Friday. And, you know, I took some time over the past couple of days to reflect on this past year, the past 50 episodes of Felony Friday. And I did have a bunch of free time over the past couple of days. I did go deer hunting. And uh, when you're hunting for deer, as you know, you hunters out there, you spend a lot of time sitting out in the woods by yourself, just with nature, just uh, staring, just waiting. And I had a lot of time to think. I did end up getting two deer last weekend, and I was uh, very thankful for that. But I also had a lot of time to think. And I was thinking, what did I expect when I started this show? What did I think it was going to be like? And I really wasn't sure on the format when I started out. I wasn't sure how many interviews I was going to do. I knew that I wanted to learn more about our criminal justice system. I knew I wanted to study and research the criminal justice system, but I really didn't know the course I was going to take. And thinking back of the course that I did take and thinking of just the incredible people that I've had the chance to interview over the past year, and starting with you know today's guest, with Karamid Ryder, what an incredible guest, what an incredible book that she's written, 23-7 Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. That book is just, it's full of so much information, full of so many stories, full of so many individual stories of people overcoming a struggle, of people dealing with the daily grind of being stuck, locked in a tiny little cell with nothing for 23 hours a day, seven days a week, for years upon years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. It's absolutely uh, just an incredible thing that this goes on in this country. It is a barbaric tactic, no matter what the crime you've done, to lock someone in a cell that is you know six by six, six by eight. It's just such, it's not humane. And I'm so thankful that someone like Karamit is out there looking into this and shining a light into it. And it's amazing that there's no transparency at all that allows you to track how many people are in solitary confinement, you know, how many hours, how many days, how many years have they spent in solitary confinement. There's no due process set out to dictate these solitary confinement sentences. It's really just an incredible phenomenon. And I'm so thankful that the Karamit came on. And thinking back 
when I had some time to reflect, think about all the other guests that I've had a chance to talk to, experts in uh, forensic DNA, fingerprint analysis, false confession experts, former homicide detectives, former corrections officers, experts in tax law, former law enforcement officers, convicted felons who have found success after spending time in prison on bogus drug charges. Well, when I say bogus drug charges, I mean they're spending years and years locked in a cell for committing a crime, a nonviolent crime where nobody was harmed, but they're spending you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in prison. And still, when they got out of prison, they were successful. They became successful entrepreneurs. Just some great stories like that, some great people that I've met this year, and I'm so thankful for that. And if you haven't listened to you know any of these episodes I'm talking about, I want to encourage you to go back. Please check out the Felony Friday archive at felonyfriday.com. Pick a couple episodes and give me some feedback. Let me know what you think. Let me know who you'd like me to talk to next year. Shoot me an email, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. Uh, you can also chat with me in the Lions of Liberty Forum. I'm very active in the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. If you haven't joined yet, if you're not a member, you can join easily. Just go to Facebook and type in the search bar at the top, Lions of Liberty Forum, and uh, click join, and we'll get you approved as long as you are a real person. We'll get you in. And, you know, myself and Mark Clare and Brian McWilliams, our goal here with this show, with the Lions of Liberty podcast, is to grow this show, to reach as many ears as we can and spread the message of liberty, spread the message of criminal justice reform, spread the message of freedom. And one way to really help us do this is by subscribing to the show on iTunes, if you haven't yet, and also going there and giving us a five-star rating and a review. If you don't have an iPhone... Please do the same on Stitcher or any podcasting app you're doing. But the best one is iTunes. That is the main podcasting library, the main podcasting app. And that really helps us in the algorithm. If you subscribe, give us a five-star rating, leave us a nice little review. We really would appreciate it. And you can also help us out by sharing the show, of course. If you have not liked us on Facebook, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Lions of Liberty. Please follow us there and share our stuff, retweet it, like it, and uh, interact with us as well. Thank you for listening for 50 episodes of Felony Friday. I really do appreciate it. This is John Odermatt signing off for the 50th time. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>